Hello, and thank you for listening to the Avid Reader Events Podcast. For more information about this event or any of our other events, please visit our website. So I'd like to start by acknowledging that we meet on um, the traditional lands of the Yagara and the Turrbal people. I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Ashley Hay is a journalist and writer who has written many award-winning books, including The Body in the Clouds, Rail Maywin's Wife and A Hundred Small Lessons, which is at the front counter. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we can start now because Holly's mum has just Hi arrived. Hi, mum. Hi, mum. <laughs> Thank you so much. Otherwise, I was going to talk very, very slowly about nothing at all until she came in the door. Um, I think Chrissy is right when she says this is one of the most uh, beautiful books that you are going to see. Uh, it is an absolutely spectacular object on the outside, but it is also an incredibly moving thing on the inside, which much as I love a great cover, um, the words are kind of important as well. So um, it does look like a thing that you just need to own because of what it looks like. And uh, I'm here to say that if you do rush off and buy a copy, as of course you all will, because you're very obedient, um, you will also relish reading it. I think this is a book that is appearing at a really interesting time. And I think a lot of people are going to find that it really resonates for them. So we're going to talk about uh, this, but I would like to tell you a little bit more about Holly Ringland who is sitting next to me looking wonderfully bright, as Holly always does. I'm not looking in a city, Melbourne, um, because I always do, but because I thought it was important to let Holly's kind of brightness fully shine tonight. So this is my attempt to kind of offset that. I'm going to tell you, I love this line in Holly's biog. Holly Ringland grew up wild and barefoot in her mother's tropical garden in northern Australia. When she was nine years old, her family lived in a camper van for two years in North America, uh, traveling from one national park to another, which I think um, is a really interesting thing to know about Holly when you're reading the book. Uh, and that, she says, sparked her lifelong interest in culture and story. In her 20s, Holly herself worked for four years in a remote indigenous community in the middle of Australia, which is also an important thing to know about her. She moved to England in 2009. She has an MA in creative writing from the University of Manchester, and she now lives between the UK and Australia with everything that that means in terms of jet lag. Um, Holly's essays and short fiction have been published in various anthologies and journals. She received a fellowship from Griffith Review on the basis of, I think I'm right in saying an early draft of part of this the book, chapter. the first chapter. Um, and it was then called The Centre is Red, which I think is also an important thing to know and maybe talk about. Now, the coming of this book is really, um, it's really something. I've lost track of the number of territories that it's been sold into now. I'm going to say I think it's more than 20. It's 20 on the knocker. It's 20 on the knocker, <laughs> um, which is phenomenal and phenomenally exciting to see an Australian story and this really is a quintessentially Australian story in many ways, kind of take wings and, and fly off to all sorts of other parts of the world. Um, in some European languages, the coming of Holly's book has meant that whole new words have had to be invented because there were no words for some of the flowers that Holly talks about in this book and some of the the kind of floral language that she gives her lovely character, Alice. Now, I think if you find yourself in a position where you are causing languages, 
to bring new words into being, you've really done something pretty special. So all of this is just a long-winded of say, a way of saying that this is a really special book and I'm really delighted to be talking with Holly about it tonight. Um, I would like to start by asking you to share with us a little about the size of the reaction that this book has met with, because it's not just about it going into 20 territories. There's been a kind of an, an upswelling of embrace, in a way, for this book. That must be something to find yourself on the other end of for a debut novel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the reaction in my family alone could raise... They're all laughing. I can hear you all. <laughs> Um, has been extraordinary because I've wanted to write since I was three and it's all I've I've not known that I was good at it but it's all I've ever wanted to do um, so I was good at that wanting um, so my publisher at HarperCollins said to me a couple of years ago when we met for the first time she said what was your biggest dream with this when you sent it off. And I said, I just wanted one person. I just wanted one person to find it and love it. And just one offer would have been extraordinary because if anybody in this room is a, um, Carly, hi. <laughs> if anybody in this room um, is, a, is a writer or an aspiring writer or a reader who loves a writer or God forbid anybody who supports and loves a writer, thank you. Um, but when you study writing and when you want to write, the, the main thing that everybody will always tell you if you do it at school or in classes is put your hand up if you want to do this with your life. And if you're really brave, you'll be like, and they're like, great, it's probably never going to happen for you. It happens for like 3%, put your hand down. And so you spend your whole life with that. And so just even within our family, this happening is, is just a tidal wave of disbelief. The, the extension of that is connecting with strangers and people that I don't know and and not connecting but seeing in people that I don't know. That this book that, you know, as you would know when you write a novel, you sit in your food-stained pants with no bra on and Speak unwashed hair. I, I, I look like this all the time. I know, Ash, I know. Um, but you, you do this thing alone and... Uh, you do it alone and alone and alone and then for it to take lungs and breathe and live in other people I don't have a word for how it feels and the reaction to know that this story is living in places where I would never dream that a woman's story would live like Russia and Eastern European countries where women fight even harder than we do for equality and rights and, and visibility. So it's to be on the receiving end of, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound boring or cliched, but it's really mind boggling. Like, I don't know how to let it sink in other than to just live it wholeheartedly as much as I can. So I wanna go back to when you were Holly, the little girl in your mum's garden. And I want to ask you how you saw the world then. Were you always someone who was doing that kind of extra attention paying thing? Were you always someone who noticed where you were and what else was growing there alongside you? 
Yeah, sometimes we don't notice things about ourselves until someone else points them out because our way of being is just how we are. But I had a boyfriend in high school whose favourite taunt, if you like, or criticism of me was, oh, you're always in Hollyland. You're always off in Hollyland, like, dreaming and feeling stuff. And, like, now I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I sort of didn't have that perception of self until, you know, teenage years, I guess. But my, you know, my childhood um, books in mum's garden were, were, were everything that I knew. And I had that experience of travelling at nine. And mum sort of homeschooled me for most of the time. So my classroom was on one day, you know, we lived in a camper van. On one day it was the Rocky Mountains. The next, you know, not the next day, but in that same stretch of space in my life, it was Yellowstone. And then when we were at home on the Gold Coast, it was Binnaburra or O'Reilly's or it was the sea. And the combination, mum taught me to read when I was three. So stories were coming in to my mind really young. And my imagination was how I occupied myself. There were pretty strict rules about TV. There were no screens, that sort of thing. Yeah. And were the flowers always important? Did you always pay attention to them? I remember saying to my granny when I was three or four, granny had a granny had a, um, an avenue of garden alongside her Queensland house that my cousins and, and, you know, my aunties and uncles that we all grew up in. And it's unanimously known in the family. It no longer exists, but it exists in our minds as the fairy garden. And I remember being three or four and saying to granny, what is God? And she looked at a flower and she said, this is God. And I had no idea what that meant, but it gave an enormous weight to the force of the natural world mm. and forces of nature. And we're not a particularly religious family or anything, but it was learning from an early age. And then as I grew up, I saw my mum, I watched mum turn to the garden and where there was dirt underneath mum's care there would suddenly be these magical flowers so I might not have been conscious of flowers as, as being important but that's because they were always there and they were always part of my stimulus I guess so we need to talk a little bit about why we keep talking about flowers. And I'm going to ask mm -hmm. you to tell us a little bit about the lost flowers of Alice Hart, what okay. the flowers are and who Alice is. Mm -hmm. um, maybe talk to us a bit about the book mm -hmm. and then I'm going to hit you up for a reading, if that's okay. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, so in 2014, uh, when I started the, writing the first draft of the book, I was living in England with my English partner, Sam, um, which is what I'm doing there. And um, I was researching something else. I was actually researching the connections between uh, traumatic experience and writing fiction. And as research is, it's like a thousand rabbit holes. And I suddenly went down a skewed rabbit hole and I was suddenly into um, Victorian communication in England and Victorian methods of communicating and that sort of thing. And I came across this really popular term at the time of floriography, mm -hmm. which I didn't know, I wasn't across, the fact that um, flowers were, were at the height of their popularity as a communication in England in Victorian times. I mean, 
when you sort of dig a bit further, they've been used in Egypt and Turkey and they've been, you know, code breakers and that sort of thing. But I was focusing on on England and and people were so... Um, the, the social etiquette, as, you know, probably a lot of people know, is that, that emotional expression was so sort of looked down upon um, and that, that sort of exterior was so important that that the language of flowers, of English flowers and European flowers became so popular that dictionaries started to appear. And so if you had a burning desire for someone or if you hated them passionately and you could not tell them to their face, you would send them flowers and they would do the talking for you. What did you send if you hated someone? Oh, like beautiful things. <laughs> you know, like a certain type of rose with the thorns facing out or poisonous things like foxgloves and that sort of thing. And it just astonished me. And it's, it astonished me to imagine, like, and it swept across Europe as well. Um, but to think about... And then, like, when you start reading the traditional language of flowers with English flowers, some of the sentiments, it's no joke. It's like, your love will kill me and then I will haunt you forever and make your life immortally hell. Like, and therefore I send you this very And nice therefore bouquet. I send you this beautiful... I mean, it's very English. Like, it's very... <laughs> Sorry, babe. <laughs> um, but that really, that really stuck in my head. Yeah. So you've invented in this book a mm. floriography for Australia, yes. which is um, an exquisite, an exquisite arrangement of flowers in and of itself. Mm. And you've given this to a particular family, and the first person we meet in the family. Is Alice, is Alice, who is just this lovely little girl. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, Alice, when we meet Alice, she's nine. And um, she's growing up in what feels like a pretty idyllic um, seaside um, by sugarcane fields, isolated home. And uh, her, her mother is very, her mother is heavily pregnant and very enchanting with her storytelling. And her best friend is her dog, Toby. And she most, mostly just tries to keep herself occupied and safe and away from her pretty moody uh, father and, and pretty dangerous father. And one of her favourite times is when she's with her mum and her mum is telling stories or she's with her mum in the garden, which is like a church experience. She knows at nine that it's really an important place to be. But there's mysterious things that her mum does, like her mum will pick flowers and pocket them and as she does she will speak their meanings out loud but Alice doesn't know what the meanings are and why her mum is reciting them and um, she doesn't know how to ask because she's only nine and it's that frustrating time where you're aware but you're not aware enough so that's how we meet Alice and get our first glimpse of the fact that there is meaning in her mother's garden that she is really curious about but completely mystified by yeah. Which part of the book are you going to read from? Are we right at the beginning here, or are we um, the part I was? In? We're a little way in. Yep. And the part I was going to read is uh, after a a tragedy changes Alice's life irrevocably. She goes to live with her grandmother um, on a flower farm. She's never met her grandmother before, and her grandmother runs a native Australian flower farm. And the scene I was going to read 
is the first morning Alice arrives at night so she can't see the flower farm because it's night time. And the part I was going to read is the next morning when she's up in her new bedroom. She's away from home. She's pretty daunted. She's mute. She's not speaking from a bit of trauma. And um, she looks out over the flower farm that's named Thornfield for the first time. I'll, I'll do that now. <laughs> this is only the second time I've read from my book, everyone, so thank you for being my audience. You are not a dog or a plant, so that makes this a good experience. <laughs> I practice with dogs or plants, so... Uh, a whiff of something sweet caught Alice's attention. She cautiously approached the window June had opened and pressed herself to the glass, her hands splayed. From the top of the house, she had a circular view of the property. From one window, she saw where the dusty driveway ran from the veranda steps towards the gum trees. Alice ran to the next window. Alongside the house was a large timber shed with a rusty corrugated iron roof, up one wall of which grew a thick vine. A path cut between the shed and the house. At the last window, Alice's heart started racing. Behind the house and the shed, row upon row of different bushes and blooms stretched into fields for as far as she could see. She was surrounded by a sea of flowers. Alice undid the latches on all the windows. The fragrant air that swept in to meet her was more pungent than the sea and stronger than burning sugarcane. She tried to identify the scents, turned sod, petrol, eucalyptus leaves, damp manure, and the unmistakable smell of roses. But it was the next moment that Alice would always remember when she saw the flowers for the first time. They could have been mistaken for men, dressed in their thick cotton work shirts, trousers and heavy work boots, just like Alice's father. Their hats were full brimmed and their hands were gloved. They emerged from the work shed in a V formation, carrying buckets, clippers, bags of fertilizer, rakes, spades and watering cans and dispersed among the flowers. Some cut and filled buckets with flowers, ferrying them back to the workshed before re-emerging with buckets ready to be filled again. Others were pushing wheelbarrows full of new soil along the rows between the flowers, pausing to shovel it onto the beds. A few more were spraying sections of the fields, checking leaves and stems. Occasionally one would laugh with another, the sound ringing out like a little bell. Alice used her fingers to count them. There were 12 in total. Then she heard the singing. Off to the side, near a cluster of greenhouses, one woman sat alone, sorting through a box of bulbs and seed packets. When she paused to take her hat off and scratch her head, Alice gasped as her long pastel blue hair fell down her back. She gathered it back up, tucked it into her hat and continued to sing. Pressed to the window, Alice watched her intently. The blue-haired woman made 13. Thank you. Now, there are a lot of wonderful women in this book. There are the flowers. There's Alice herself, because we go with her from, you know, when we meet her as a little girl, we come, you know, sort of through a substantial part of her life. There is Alice's mother. There are other women who care for Alice, including her grandmother. Can you talk a little bit about some of these women and where you found them, I guess, along the journey yeah. of the book? I was thinking about this today because um, it's really weird after being such a, a book lover and, and dreamer and want to be writer 
to suddenly find myself having the same answers that I've heard other writers have when I've gone to listen to them speak. And someone will say, how did you write these characters? And, and other people that I've listened to have said, they just appeared, or I don't know, or it just came to me. And I would sit in the audience going, what? <laughs> give, me more. give me more than that. And so I was thinking about this today because I wanted to give you more than that. And um, I think when I, when I followed what was happening to Alice, I needed to, find, I needed to find where she was going and with who. And every character can't be the same because otherwise that would be really uninteresting for everybody. So I knew that she was going to her grandmother and then I sort of had to think about what, what sort of woman June is, her grandmother. And then I thought about what sort of woman June might attract or, or, or what sort of character would be drawn to work with June and how we all gather people to us or around us that we need in one way or another, maybe sometimes for good or bad. And that's how the, the flowers, who are the women that work at Thornfield, the flower farm, and um, June's two closest sort of chosen family members, Twig and Candy, came into being. I just really thought about where they fit in the, in the web of, of human relationships in the story. And then the really fun part is imagining who they are and what their backstory is. You know, like those movies that you see where the camera will zoom in on one character and stay with them until someone walks past? And then it will go to that person and everyone, of course, has a backstory. So I'd watched an episode, I mean, England, I have so much to thank England for. I'd watched an episode of Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> and in Antiques Roadshow, there was a woman, there was, you know, estate, um, like uh, belongings. And I heard the, the beautiful British presenter in his very British tone talk about the most fascinating thing about this was that the woman had said that it could never, ever, 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 under any circumstance, this jewellery be left to a man. And that was another thing that just really captured my imagination about all the problems that that could throw up and about what might have happened to cause her to make that decision. And all of those little things are just sort of seeds and fertilisers. So when I'm thinking about all the women that run the farm and thinking about the lineage and, and who was there. That's sort of how they came to me, yeah. There are some amazing men in the book as well. There are some amazing men in the book, yeah. um, And I was really interested, because I, I read the book uh, last year and then was rereading it again at the end of last week. And I'd forgotten that Alice's father speaks in the language of flowers as well, he very does. early in the book. Yeah, in the first chapter. And there's this lovely sort of layered sense of um, different parts of his personality and then a lot of the other men that Alice encounters mm. who... And, you know, just stories that she hears about mm. the sort of older men in her family that would have mm. been her grandfather and her great-grandfather. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what fed into them and what you sort of needed them to do in yeah. the book? Yeah, I think... I think, too, with the... Like, I didn't... I couldn't write a novel in Australia and have it be... I needed every character to be... There had to be diversity. It couldn't just be a novel where everybody was the same, with the same background and the same culture, because I don't think that's our country at all. And so when thinking about the women and, and especially with the men, I was very aware that in myself, 
in a really honest way. This is not a man-hating book. And um, I'm very lucky to know very good men. There are a number of them in this room. And um, I really wanted to sort of step away even from gender a little bit and just explore that fluid grey area between are we ever just one thing or another? And that's why I tried, hard as it was, to layer Alice's dad. And that's why her granddad and her great-granddad in the brief lineage, like the snapshot of her lineage that you get, they are also layered and driven by different motives. And that's really where I think I was motivated in writing the characters, was in terms of what did I need them to do, I just really needed everybody to be as human as I could make them in all of our mess and glory and beauty and horror and, and wonderfulness. So before we leave the women, I want to talk to you a little bit about one, um, I guess one piece of research or one thing that I know you got to do while you were working on the book, which was, I'm giving away my age when I say this, but there was a very, very, very famous and powerful book in the 19... Late, the late 1980s or early 1990s called The Women Who Run With The Wolves mm-hmm. by a remarkable American woman. She lives in America, she lives but in her America. heritage is like Hungarian and Mexican. And, okay. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about how that woman and her work <laughs> come to intersect with Alice Hart and her flowers? Yes, that was... I mean, I'm the last person that ever dreamed that that would be an intersection that this would make, but... In 2012, when I started looking into researching trauma and writing, the first book that I picked up to read was Women Who Run With The Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, which you know some of you might know because it sat on the New York Times bestseller list for like 400 years. And like women that I meet um, across ages and decades will say to me, I read that when I was 21, now I'm 50, or I picked that up, I'm 21, I picked it up two months ago, I'm reading it for the first time. And it is um, Dr. Estes' exploration of archetypes and fairy tales that we all know, and she breaks them down in terms of looking at the keys inside of them, because she's a Jungian psychologist, and she deals in traumatic therapy. So I started reading this book in 2012, And I didn't even know, Alice didn't exist then in any clear, conscious way. Um, In 2014 is when I started writing. The book had a pretty profound effect on me, as I know it does so many women and men. And in 2015, for my, just before my 35th birthday, my, I was on my laptop totally procrastinating from working and telling Sam in the next room, I'm just working, babe, just working. And I was on my laptop and I was Googling sort of um, fairy tales and stuff for inspiration. And I saw that Dr. Estes was teaching a five-day training course in Colorado. And for the first time ever in her body of work, she was using Women Who who Run With The Wolves as the source text for this five days, exploring trauma and fairy tales and humans and archetypes. And I sat back and I thought, Oh, is this a sign? I don't believe in signs, but do I? I might. I might believe in signs. Sam, do I believe in signs? And so um, my 35th birthday was coming up and um, Sam, my partner, works for a charity and I didn't have a job. So we weren't 
We did not want for anything, but we weren't rolling in cash that you'd just find under the bed to fly to Colorado on a whim and go and study with Dr. Estes. And I'm um, an exceedingly lucky woman to have a partner and best friend that believes in my dreams more than I do at times and, and has done. And he said, you can't not go. I'm going to leave the decision up to you, but how can you not go? So we tetris our credit cards around and stuff, and I jumped on a plane to Colorado and went and studied with Dr. Estes for five days and um, sort of tried, it was like a hundred people there and one man named Mario who became in a very endearing, probably completely inappropriate way, the mascot for the five days. Because <laughs> um, all of, you know, the rest of us were women and um, it was absolutely mind blowing because if you love fairy tales and you love darkness and, and goodness and what they speak to us and have from ancient times, you know, you come up with the with the idea that though Disney is, is beautiful and wonderful, fairy tales are not just for children, you know, especially not for children, and they are really powerful things. And going and studying traumatic experience and trauma with a hundred other people in the room who are psychologists and trainers and I, I didn't have the courage that I had when I went, that I had when I came home. Did it change the story itself or did it just change your ability to write it or the way that you wanted to write it, I guess? Both, I think. I don't exactly know how it might have changed the story itself, itself other than maybe if I'd written it any other way, it might not have had the same driving strength through it because when I, I got home in July and it was five days so I think I was gone for 10 days in total and when I got home in July um, from August to October I wrote a hundred thousand words and I and it was the first draft I'd written the first 11,000 by hand and then I'd stepped away from it and when I got back from Colorado I just had a fire under my bum that I didn't have before and I don't know of course I don't know how else I would have gotten it um, I'd like to think that I would have, I hope. Thankfully, I don't have to wonder. <laughs> um, but that's how, that's what an enormous, it was just so much of, I've been so aware, like I was talking about writing teachers before, just because you want something and you work really, really hard at it, life has no guarantees and you're not guaranteed to get what you, what you dream of since you're three just because you've dreamed of it and worked really hard for it. So there is a big element of luck and timing. And a lot of this has felt like luck and timing. I showed up and worked to the point of nearly breaking my brain, it felt like, to me. And luck and timing turned up as well. And I'm just really grateful that, that, that that's happened. Mm. So we've talked a little bit about um, the sort of research into trauma that feeds mm. into the book, and mm. I don't want to talk about um, the sort of plot or give, mm. you know, give things away for the people who still have the loveliness of getting and knowing Alice um, as an experience. But there are there are sort of cycles and there are patterns mm. that the book addresses, and that Alice has to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Some that she negotiates you know, better and more comprehensively than others. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, those sort of elements of, uh, of return and, um, and resurrection at the sort of good end of it and repetition at the bad end of it? Yeah. And the kind of survival stories that you were wanting to, yeah. that you were wanting to take in there? I, something that I've talked about since the, um, 
since I signed with HarperCollins and, and I knew that the book was going to become a book, um, one of the first things that, that my publisher said to me is, let's have a think about how you're going to talk about this book because people are going to want to know, you know, like, you know, where did you get the idea and where did it come from and that sort of thing. And in terms of exploring the cycles and the return and resurrection, that's a beautiful phrase, actually. Um, I, you know, I've said it a number of times now, and of course it still makes me sweat and shake, and I still feel shame, because shame is such an enormous part of it. But I've lived a massive amount of my life with male-perpetrated violence, and as anybody in this room who has experienced any level of trauma, which is part of being alive, um, knows sometimes when it's unprocessed trauma or it's unrememberable or you don't know what to do with it, it can silence you in every way. Your voice, your imagination, your relationships, your, you know, it's really damaging. And so I think when I was writing this novel, in terms of the long shadow that trauma casts and in terms of being responsible to Alice, which was such a blessing in really feeling her so vividly and so really that sometimes I just got really sad that I couldn't go and take her for a beer. I know that sounds really like woo-woo, but, but you spend that much time thinking about a person and the line gets a bit blurry in how much you consider them and what's right for them. And, oh, God, I'm sorry I have to do this to you, but it's going you know, to be okay and that sort of thing. And I, I wanted to do... I wanted to do a truthful honour to anybody who goes through that shadow that it casts on a life and the cycles because I've lived them and I know them and and I didn't want to write something that didn't feel emotionally true because I think that's what fiction is it's it's emotional truth and so the cycles and the bad decisions and the good decisions and the return and resurrection that seems to be the shape of trauma and the shape of hope and the shape of survival. And so it was kind of instinctual, the way that those themes came up in the novel. And then it was also like the first draft that I wrote, <laughs> no spoilers, the first draft that I wrote, there is a, an event sort of in the second third to the last third of the novel. And in writing it, even amazing what you can hide from yourself. Because in the first draft, I wrote it and I sent it off and it went out to publishers. And when my, the publisher that I went with, HarperCollins, when Catherine Milne came back to me and said, you know, let's talk about structural edits. I was like, oh, great, yes. Tell me how it can be better because I'm sick of being in it alone. And she said, so this part here, and my whole body went cold because I had completely hidden it from myself in that willful blindness ability that humans have. And she was like, you've gone from here to here in one chapter. And I was like, no. You noticed that? You noticed? It was like I'd gone into a dark room and just, well, I mean, I do this in my house. Sorry, babe, to tell everyone that. But like, if people are coming over, I'll like rearrange the cushions. And I'm like, I'm not folding that bundle of laundry and I'll push it over there. and. And in a, in a not-so-blasé way, the, the, the dirty stuff and the dark stuff, I was like, oh, I'll just push it under this scene and I'll push it oh, over there. Gorgeous. And Catherine walked straight in with a torch and was like, here. So I had to write 10,000 extra words to, to flesh that out. Mm. So I even hid it from myself, but, you know, got there in the end. One of the things I loved, I love, and I really do understand that sense of wanting to take your characters for a beer, but one of the things that you gave Alice that I loved you for 
was a number of dogs, <laughs> which are just the kind of dogs that you feel in your heart as you read the book. Can you talk to us about <laughs> some of the inspiration for those characters before we go oh. back to something a little bit larger and probably more important, but just to give you a little chance to recover yourself. Talk to us about the dogs that go with Alice, because they seem like pretty special creatures. They are. I, I mean, uh, <laughs> my parents are in the audience, and they, they know what I'm like without dogs. Actually, a lot of people in the audience know what I'm like without dogs. I get blamed for all the spoiling. I just think dogs are magical creatures, and I think that they are excellent um, um, barometers of human emotion and, and unconditional love. And I just knew straight away that Alice would have a dog in, thank God, I needed her to have something. And um, so she gets the gift of a dog named Toby. Um, and Alice and Toby have a secret language um, that she teaches him to speak. And um, Toby is something that she loses when her life changes. And then later in life, she has Harry and Harry is an assistant dog who is trained to look after people who have suffered trauma. So he's like literally an emotional reader of humans and he is lovely. And then when she is an adult, she has Pip and she finds Pip or Pip finds her. And my inspiration, um, we were never, I was raised by a nothing less than brilliant single mum and we had cats, we had kittens, mum brought home kittens but we didn't have a dog until someone said, I need you to take, I was about 17, I need you to take this dog. I can't have her, she can't go to the pound. So we found ourselves, you know, beautiful single mum, found ourselves with a dog now to also look after. And she was wonderful, Gemma was amazing. And then the whole family was converted into dog people. And now, I mean, <laughs> we're not just dog people. Toby, um, who Alice has a secret language with, when I wrote the first chapter, I named Toby Toby because Toby was real and Toby was my best friend. And then um, after I, he sat at my feet every day while I wrote and he was deaf, he was born deaf. So we had a secret language. And um, when I couldn't write the hardest bits, I would go and sit with him and just burrow into his wool and his fur. And he just made everything better and he made me brave and, and he listened to me. <laughs> And not long after I finished the novel, Toby died. And, um, and grieving, you know, as anybody knows, grieving a pet is as real as grieving any human family. And I thought, I'm not gonna change his name. Tobes and Alice can, can stay forever. And so then my parents went and got three more. <laughs> and so now I live in dog heaven and they're Australian shepherd dogs. And um, my mum is no longer a single mum. She has a beautiful husband who is my dadgy, and he's here. And they live on three acres together in their home. And so when I come home from England, I mean, mum will text message me and she'll be like, we're so excited, but she's wise enough to know the dogs are ready. And I'm like, yeah, because we all know, her. like I'm equally as excited. So just my experience of the wonder of what it's like to be loved by and to love a dog, but also what a massive, indicator of character in humans dogs are. You can tell a person by how they treat a dog. You can figure someone out by how they treat animals, even if all their other cues are something else. And that, that snuck up on me in the novel as well. So 
Yeah, Alice had to have many dogs, lots of dogs. Yeah. They're beautiful dogs. <laughs> um, I'm going to leave some time for you guys to ask Holly uh, questions, but I will just uh, go a little bit further. And one of the most important things to talk about in this book are the landscapes. So there's a couple of things that I would like to talk about here. But the first is to say this is um, it's a quintessentially Australian book in its landscapes. Absolutely. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the process of um, conjuring up, whether mm. it's a remembering or a creating, these places. So the seaside town where mm. Alice is a little girl, um, the inland farm with the beautiful river where mm. she is when mm. she's with her grandmother and then the centre of Australia. Can you talk to us a little bit about finding those places from 16,000 kilometres away? Yes, Is it a freeing yeah. thing to do it at that distance? I think for me personally, because landscapes are so evocative and are so infused with memory mm. so potently, like when you went camping somewhere as kids and you go back there as an adult, you have that really vivid, you know, flashback. And... Um, it's really that's a really um, pertinent question because I've been asked in the last couple of days, do you write what you know or do you write what you you don't know and imagine and which camp are you in? Yeah. And um, sort of how yeah how did you write Australia from Manchester? Because I wrote the the first um, first draft in England, and I think that um, I think I've got a foot in both camps if if a, a decision has to be declared. Yeah. <laughs> where, where you know, if you write what you know and your senses know, it will always be pretty powerful on the page because you know it. Mm. But I think it's really important to imagine as well. And a lot of the places are, a lot of the places are imagined, if this makes any sense, and real. So I grew up on the Broadwater, on the Gold Coast, and we lived a block from the ocean. And my days were Mum's Garden and the Soldier Crabs and the Pacific and. Um, you know, windsurfing and, and that sort of thing. But um, my growing up, my granny lived uh, in a big Queenslander house in Gladstone, which is a sort of, it's bigger now, but in the 80s, it was pretty small and quiet. And, and in, you know, in the last sort of 10 years, she's lived in Maribara, and at the end of her street, there are just endless fields of sugarcane, which, which just are mesmerising and fascinate me. So when I wrote Alice's uh, when I was writing Alice's first sort of landscape, which is the sea backed up by sugarcane mm. fields, um, I was sort of moulding and melding and creating all at once a place that I'd never actually been to, like that, that specific place. And then um, the same with the flower farm and with the desert. They're places that I'm building from places that I've been but are sort of wholly imagined as well. I want to talk a little bit more about the desert place mm -hmm. because um, when I started reading the book, I actually Googled the place to understand <laughs> why it was that I'd never heard of it, which was, of course, because Holly had invented it. But it was so... I wanted it to be real. I wanted it. It's this beautiful heart-shaped crater mm. in the centre of Australia. And I just desperately wanted to know that it was there and that I could go there. And then I started thinking about you know, all the stuff that we all think about as writers now of how we write landscape and how we particularly write landscape that is freighted with Indigenous experience and yeah. Indigenous stories. And I started to think about 
the sort of extra power of this this work that you've done with this. And when I was rereading the book um, last week, there's that lovely line that just nods to Ali Cobby Eckerman and a mm. conversation that you'd had with her mm. about how you walked up to the making of this place and her sort of sense of the rightness of that. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about how you decided that you needed to invent where Alice went? Yeah, I I mean to be tot like to be completely honest, writing about writing about any culture that is not mine, um, and there are multicultures in the book. Um, you know, there are Mexican characters and Bulgarian characters um, with that background, but are all Australian, have grown up here. And then of course, I, I, was, I was so nervous, I know, and I know that, you know, we've had conversations about the nerves that writers have because I don't want to appropriate anybody else's culture. I also couldn't have Alice, like at the same time, I couldn't have Alice going to the desert and just live at a pub where there's lots of white fellas and um, just hanging out there, you know, with absolutely no awareness, particularly in the centre where it's so undeveloped and so many people still live traditional lives. So um, I, lived, I lived in an Aboriginal community in the desert and I thought to myself, right, should it be there? And this clanging, resonating feeling rose through me that was like, uh, no, it shouldn't be because all of the actual stories that are there, they're not mine to tell. They're, they're just not mine to tell. And so I didn't want to take on under any guise or any character, any assumption to tell the real stories that are embedded in the land. So I went and spoke to Ali, um, who's a really dear friend of mine. And, um, and I, because we're good friends, um, I could say to her, listen, I'm thinking about this. And she sort of said to me, I think you need to listen to that feeling and I think you'd be very wise to to invent a place. And so I took that to heart and then with with my very best um, efforts and intentions, you know, after living there for four years and the people I met and the stories from the women that I worked with that I was lucky enough to sit and listen to and talk with and share with because they taught me things that I had never learned anywhere else and haven't learned since, um, I decided to make up a place and use real language. Um, and, and even though the name of the place is made up, the language Pitanjara is absolutely 100% a billion years old, real. Yeah. It's a beautiful section of the book. Um, I, I was talking about the fact I think this book will have a particular resonance for a lot of readers and partly it is the confluence that there's a real uh, there's a real sense that stories are being told differently at the moment, that um, it is possible for different stories to kind of come into the light and, you know, maybe be heard and maybe there's a chance for some of the stories that keep being told and being told to actually have an effect and affect some kind of change. So I wanted to ask you how the power of the book feels to you appearing as it is now and sort of what you hope its readers will carry away from it with them this could be the one i've been very good this could be the one thing that chokes me up <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna breathe deeply and channel my inner francis mcdormand um i'm i dedicate this book to women who doubt the worth and power of their stories because we have been forced to be silent for a very, very, very long time. 
and all of our stories matter and we matter. And the reason why I, as much as I might want to, the reason why I won't sit up here and avoid saying that I've suffered violent men in my life is because I don't want to dishonour any reader, male or female, by hiding that. And I think that this book is for anybody who has had their voice silenced or wants a story that gives them hope or just wants to feel like no matter what, we're not as alone as we think we are. And that the most important thing is that we can never give up and that hope is the most powerful thing. Yeah. So one of the most wonderful things about moving through the book with Alice is the way she finds different families as she goes, as she moves to um, where her grandmother is with her grandmother's kind of assembled family and as she goes into the desert and the people that she finds there. And I think one of the most extraordinary things about being a writer is that you kind of assemble a family as you go as well because if you're lucky enough to find someone who will put your book into the world, then it has the chance of finding its readers and they start to travel with you too. So I would like to officially send Alice Hart well into the world from Brisbane and ask you all to join me in thanking Holly Ringland for being with us tonight, for her words here and in the pages of the book. Oh, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Ash. That was beautiful. Thank you.